Welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining, episode 82. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined as always by Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Ben. It's been an interesting week. It's been a bit of an interesting week. I mean, geez, did you guys see that first take business? My word. Wow. Okay, <laughs> briefly. <laughs> you want to talk about that briefly? I don't want to talk been... about it. I just, it's been kind of a crazy sports media week. Let's just. Sports on field, on court, not so much. No, there's Pretty... been nothing. Nothing. Sports. The rest of the operation, yeah, some stuff. Some things. Some Some things are happening. Obviously, the main thing which we're going to talk about on this episode is uh, based around the story, which came out a few places, but most personally to me, (laughs) the the investigation and report I did into the plagiarism by Neil Harmon for the Wimbledon Annual, the extensive plagiarism, finding 52 examples of long passages taken without attribution or a significant under attribution for his work on that book for the last three years and his subsequent suspension and the sort of fallout that has happened from that. And so this is an issue that Courtney and I have been aware of for some time now and that we have had very forefront in our minds when it comes to our jobs recently. And so now that this is all out there, we thought we would uh, pull back the curtain a little bit and sort of talk you guys through how the story came together and what we think about all the different factors involved. There's a lot of different issues that this story, I think, touches on. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that more than anything, so much of this is, is kind of about transparency. I mean, I think that hopefully through 81 episodes of, of the NCR podcast, as well as, you know, Ben's work and my work or even just Twitter and the way that we choose to talk about and, and cover the sport and what we talk about when we cover the sport. I mean, I think that I'm not going to speak for you, Ben, but I know that I try as best I can to kind of be like, this is how the sausage is made, you guys. Like, oh, yeah. you know, like this is there's no mystery here, you know, and, and these are things that people seem to be curious about. And I know that I was definitely curious about, you know, how does the whole world of like tennis journalism, tennis writing, tennis tournaments, tours, organizations, players, all of this. How does this weird little bio system that we operate in this ecosystem, how does it work? And and so this is kind of a part of that. You know, I mean, this is an unfortunate thing that we have to talk about. I, I can admit very wholeheartedly as I sit here that I'm not entirely comfortable, like, you know, like kind of talking about everything. But I also know that, that, that it is a story. It's, it's news, something that happened. And I think that it's, it's, I mean, kind of, I want to make sure that I think is a word for it. Yeah. I mean, it's important, but also I just want to make sure that like a discussion happens, Yeah, I guess in a lot of ways, you know, because I think there, there's, like you said, Ben, there's a lot of different issues here and there are things that, that need to be kind of brought out into the open and discussed. And I think it's doing a disservice to, what we give you guys if we don't do that. So let's dive right in. Courtney, I know you sort of said before we were going on air that you wanted to almost interview me about this story, or because I guess I was the one who came up with the final thing. But you know, obviously, a lot of where this came from, too. Believe it or not, you guys, we talk to each other when we're not on the show <laughs> quite a bit. And we don't get sick of each other somehow. Weird. It's pretty strange. Against all odds. <laughs> Yeah, so true. <laughs> <laughs> where, where should where do you think we should start this story, Courtney? Well, I think that 
you know, obviously, as people who at, at this point, first of all, I hope that people have read, you know, Ben's yeah. uh, two pieces, if not both pieces, fine, but at least read the, read the first one. I think that because we got a lot of questions where I feel like a lot of the answers were actually in the pieces. So I will say so, that right now, if you have not read it, go pause this episode unless you're like driving or something and then, you know, keep going. But if yeah. you're in a position where you can pull up the article and then read it, uh, it's called Unforced Errors. It's by me. It's on Slate.com. It came out on Wednesday. If you can search any combination of those words, Neil Harmon, Slate, whatever, it'll come up. You'll find it. Yeah. And so, like, we're going to talk about this assuming that everybody kind of has that base knowledge because I, I don't know if it really makes sense to, like... Regurgitate it. No, I mean... Yeah, you know. Yeah. So, so but I guess the, most of the questions that we got in our kind of call for questions were really just related to how in the world did this all come about? Like, when did you guys know what you knew? When did you find out? And how did it kind of all become what is the story, the two pieces that were up on slate? So I guess I'll kind of hand the reins over to you for now, Ben, and then you can chime me in. Okay. <laughs> where needed. I, will, I will first <laughs> say that the, as I think I said, I, I bet even less people, it's not required reading for the episode, but I did an interview today with Svenja, Mastro Berardino is a Swiss friend of both of ours, and she uh, translated into German. So if you happen to read German, you might have already heard a little bit of this. But basically, I'd heard whispers about this sort of thing for a while before Wimbledon. and But it wasn't really until the very late stages of Wimbledon when I got my hands on a copy of the annual and sort of started looking through it and finding these things that I really understood what was at stake. And John Wertheim done similarly. He also found out and he had had his stuff uh, taken directly and confronted the club about it. And, conf- and then Neil, I think, uh, sort of found him because I guess he heard from the club that Wertheim had found out about this. And they sort of talked for a while. And I was sort of content to let that run its course. And then when it seemed seemed like it had and that part of it was over, I wasn't really satisfied. And I so kept looking through the 2013 annual. We bought uh, a copy. Um, and then I got another copy of the 2012 book right away found a few things in there. I mean, the numbers, I think there were 14 that were found in the 2013 book and then uh, eight that were found in the 2012 book. So it seemed like it was going down, but I just ordered the 2011 one just to be curious. And there was so different than the other two. That's one of the main things when I was looking at this. I mean, there are 30 in the 2011 book, and these are long, long passages oftentimes where you can pretty much Google so many different phrases that are in the book, like take a sentence and Google it. And that's all we were doing is just Googling phrases and getting hits. And there was no sort of software, another software that checks plagiarism automatically. And if we had had a digital copy of the books, or if I had had a digital copy of the book, or if anybody, then it could have possibly yielded a lot more. Who knows what I missed or what anybody missed when they were looking through this stuff. Right. Because I know that like yeah. you, yeah, because Ben, obviously, he bought a copy. He went through it. I bought a copy. Yeah. of the 2013 I went through it as well and yeah this wasn't a high-tech operation this no. was literally like you just kind of read a sentence and you're like hmm there is some very unique phrasing in this sentence and you kind of googled that and literally that's how we found you know the different instances in the 2013 annual um and then Ben continued his his, his investigation into the the older ones yeah no I'm just looking at my notes here from this just pulled up my sort of document on it that I had running. I mean, I could Google phrases like romantic, keenly attuned. There's those three words in quotes, and they would only have appeared one other place ever before. And it was by an, in an article, like for this one, for example, by Chris Clary from 2011, about the same topic, about uh, Court 3 being debuted at Wimbledon. Or Google, let's see. Yeah, this, 
this one was in the first slide article. There were no stars and stripes flags here, not even a celeb celebratory whoop or yowl of USA, spelled like Y O O E S S A Y. I mean, like these were really spottable things. It wasn't like he was just sort of copying box scores or something. These were like really unique, colorful, oftentimes phrases that were taken. And so then the question, and even before I found all of this, the question had been what to do with this information. And there was a lot, a lot of discussion that you and I had that other people, because I mean, we were, we should also say at this point, we were not the only two <laughs> yeah. or, or even us plus worth. And we were not the only ones who knew that this had happened. I think we, at least we became, or I at least sort of, I think we're just the only one initially who started to sort of grasp the scale of it through looking at the 2012 and 2011 books. Um, I'm not sure anybody else had done that, but and then I was talking to other people who became aware of it. Yeah, no. So it was really just a sort of what to do now. And that was a huge, huge dilemma. I mean, because I've never found anything like this before, really. I've never done a story about this sort of thing, about another reporter, sort of a condemnation type story or expose, if you want to call it investigation, anything like that in terms of any other sort of media person. So it was really uncharted territory. And there was a lot of, I don't want to say it wasn't like lost sleep, but it was like preoccupation with what to do with this and it definitely weighed on me for quite a while yeah because there was a lot of there were a lot of different things that were going on and and you know in the course of i mean this is in uh ben's follow-up slate piece like in the course of going through the 2013 annual like i was just sitting there googling phrases and then bloop like my own name came up and yeah. and let's talk so, about that because i did not have my stuff in there yeah i never i never i was only covered of the, i've only covered wimbledon two times in person 2013 2014 so there would have been less chance. Well, I guess you've done it a few more years, but your stuff was in the 2013 book, I believe. Yeah, just both the 2013. Of the, both, both of the examples that were found for you? Just the 2013 book, yeah. yeah. So, but what was your reaction when you Googled and found your own name? Just what does that feel like? Um, It's it's a really complex thing because I've actually tried to like kind of sit down and, and write that. You know, what is, what does it feel like to, to be plagiarized, I guess? Mm -hmm. Um, And I've really struggled with kind of finding the words to kind of put it, uh, to say it that way. I mean, I, I think my initial reaction was I burst out laughing, yeah. to be quite honest. Um, that was my initial reaction was just kind of, I burst out laughing. And then there was that moved into kind of like, I can't believe this. Like, I can't believe like, he stole from me like that. I just didn't make sense. You know, I mean, I, you know, taking from a Kevin Mitchell or a John Wertheim or, you know, like those writers, Chris Clary, that makes sense to me on some oh, level. Come on. No, no, no. I'm really not trying to be that. I just, I really was. I mean, it was two instances in the 2013 annual, both related to women's tennis. Shocker. And yeah. um, they were both from live blogs of the women's semifinal and then the women's final. And it just, they were really nondescript. He didn't take a lot from me. Like, let's make, let's be clear about yeah, that. It was shorter passages. Super short passages. Like, I think two, three sentences at the most. Yeah. But it just was kind of, I didn't really know how I felt about it, you know, because there was on a, on one level just pure bemusement. Like, I can't believe, like, really? And then on the other hand, there was kind of the, just from a purely philosophical perspective, you know, a bit of indignation. Yeah, I, sure. I was absolutely flabbergasted that 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 could happen that you know you share a press room with somebody who who would have done that and and so that was kind of the disappointment I suppose that I had and yeah so that was my reaction but then once I found that and obviously because John had found you know two instances of him being stolen from I I think both of us kind of felt like 
I, cause I know that I was doing this and kind of researching and thinking, well, maybe we could do a piece like, you know, th- things like that. And then I think at that moment, because of the legal implications yeah. of everything, I think SI kind of like took a backseat and, and we're like, some, yeah. we we're not going to break news that involves uh, this. Awesome. And we got, and I got this, we got the same question from uh, our friend Colette Lewis, uh, zoo tennis. And she asked, and we're not going to, we're going to, Mostly for we got a lot of questions about this, which we asked for, which is great. But most of the time, we're just going to try to sort of incorporate the questions into how we tell the story. We're not going to read them off like the past questions episode. But basically, why did I do this story for Slate and not the New York Times? And honestly, a big part of it was the New York Times had six different things stolen from them for this in this tube in the books. Interestingly, um, only in 2011 and 2012, not in 2013. And then SI was only in 2013. So it's interesting that he suddenly switched preferences. Sorry. Some point along there. I know. <laughs> he got sick of us. But yeah, so it was just legal ramifications because they didn't know if they were going to have to bring legal action yeah. in terms of their intellectual property being taken. And so Slate obviously did not have anything taken, and it was a much cleaner place to write the story from. And for a while, and that's part of why it took a while, is that I was talking to the Times and sort of really sort of feeling out that option first, because that was my first instinct. That's who I do most of my reporting for. But in the end, I think this wound up being a pretty uh, good site to do it because I had, you know, it's online, so it was unlimited space. I could put long passages and show stuff, and it wasn't quite as um, restricted as maybe it might have turned out if it, in a Times version that had to sort of walk a tightrope because of the possible legal actions later. Right, exactly. So, so I think that that's why, weirdly, like the two outlets that you and I work for kind of had to take, had to stay on the sidelines for it. Yeah. Yeah. So I know a lot of people, yeah, we're interested about why it went on slate instead of the times. So, and I should say so, that I've know. written for slate before. Um, yeah. Some people might not realize that I've written a couple of things for them in the past. Uh, the editor there, Josh Levine, who hosts the hang up and listen podcast for slate, which you guys should all listen to. If you have any interest in sports outside of tennis, they will serve you well. And they do a little bit of tennis too during majors mostly. Yeah. So that was the process. And I will, say that I had times when I was finding these dead ends in terms of where to put the story that I did have thoughts occur to myself like well I could just send an email to Deadspin or something and let them do it right but ultimately it just didn't seem it didn't seem like the way to go and also I knew this how big a story this was going to be for him and for the tennis world for him being Neil and so I sort of wanted to keep a little more control over how it got out so that was, but yeah, there was definitely no, there was a lot of long conversations about what should happen and what direction we should take in terms of that. Yeah. And I mean, I can tell you even, I think on the first episode we did after Wimbledon, uh, while we were recording the show, like we, between segments, we're sort of talking <laughs> about what question to answer next or something. And we went on a 20 minute tangent <laughs> that I had to cut out of the show about this, about this whole Neil thing where we just sort of like, you know, talking and getting exasperated with each other about what to do because this was like i said it did weigh on us for quite a while it was not it felt like not keeping a secret but something that we had to keep bottled up for a while yeah and and it was not easy and i and i will say that that i know for myself like a lot of the kind of concern and and kind of hesitation uh with respect to the story really did you know you did have to look at your own situation right and and what does this mean i mean does this mean that you know, for example, for like for Ben, does this mean like every, like what's the U.S. Open press room going to be like? I know. Like, you know, and, and how is this going to be received amongst our peers? And or, you know, and and does this somehow tank us in some way? Does this affect our careers? You know, like, is it worth it? You know, all these sorts of things are things that you do have to kind of just sit and reckon with and, and make sure that you think go about it methodically. And, and that was the thing is that 
as Ben mentioned, we had heard the whispers for a while, but at the time, neither I, neither of us had a copy of the annual. Yeah. That's a big thing. So you yeah, can't you, do anything without that. Right. And, you really and can't. so, yeah. So you can hear whispers and you can hear people come up to you and tell you like, I guarantee you hundred percent, like he took for me for this and for that and for this and for that, like whatever, but that's just gossip. And it's yeah. not until, and when you bring forth like a, kind of a a charge like this like man you better be right you know yeah. i mean this isn't something you just like jokingly laugh about in and in terms of plagiarism within you know the 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 journalism community i mean it's it's a, a serious charge and you better be absolutely right and so that's why i think it just kind of took some time to incubate and it it, it took a few things to happen yeah. to where yeah it it but at the end of the, at the end, it kind of came together like really fast for you. No, went, once once it got going, it got going quickly. And I will say, fast forward to this part of this week, I forget when I got the 2011 annual for the first time. When I sort of, and that's when I really was like, okay, wow, this is now not like he did a few bad things and it was isolated. When this was like pretty much, really, it could have been an entire book out of just copied stuff. Then I heard on Monday or Tuesday, I heard from someone in the UK that that Private Eye, this uh, public affairs magazine. It seems to be very satirical and very irreverent, especially for Britain, as I'm learning in this situation. <laughs> they were going to have something about it potentially in their next issue. And we are a bi-weekly magazine, fortnightly, as they call it there, that was coming out late Tuesday night, sort of to be on newsstands Wednesday morning. I had talked to somebody, I talked to the editor at Slate on Tuesday, and then Tuesday night found out that it was coming out that next day, and went and had somebody in Britain, like, go get the... Uh, get a copy of the magazine at like 7 a.m. there, like fresh off the presses, send me what private I had, which still has not appeared online. This is a kind I must say, in all this, I don't understand privatized business model <laughs> in any sense. Like they had this big story and buried it in a print-only thing that's in one country. And I realize it's a British story. It's a very British story, the story. But like, what are you doing? <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't link to them or anything. And it was really frustrating. I, obviously, I knew exactly what they said. I had a photograph of their entire article. But uh, but yeah, anyway, sidebar. So that really expedited it. And that made me know that people, once it was there, we're going to start picking up on it. And I had already had all this information compiled. I was pretty much ready to go. So I pulled pretty much an all-nighter in terms of pulling it together, getting going into the Slate office and spending all day there, which was new for me because as we were discussing, one other thing I'll mention, is I think it's just adorable of us honestly <laughs> is that a couple of days before this i had never seen the movie shattered glass <laughs> and I, and i knew that it was about for those of you who haven't seen it, it's about this guy named stephen glass who was a journalist writer for the new republic magazine um and in the 90s he was in his uh, early mid-20s and found to have fabricated a lot of stories almost com some completely out of thin air and it was revealed, and it's this sort of sort of newsroom ethics investigation story. And so, as Courtney and I were like chin deep in this whole Neil story, we like sat down, like synchronized our computers, and started watching Shattered Glass one night. And I never really had like because I work almost all on site at tournaments or from home. I don't live in New York. I don't go to the New York Times offices. I've been there like honestly less than ten times in my life to the main offices. So I was there, but I went into Slate because Slate's in D.C., their offices, and I was there in the room with my editor, Josh, and we sort of pounded at the story, and I was like, oh, my God, this is just like the movies. <laughs> you're, you're such a dork. <laughs> I know. But anyway, but so we were really under time pressure. I will say, though, so to back up a little bit, and this is something a lot of people have asked about, too, once 
I knew that I was going to come up with a story that day. I would wanted to wait to do this because you don't want to give too much time before press, but I wanted to give them time to respond. So when it became, I think it was about 2.30 a.m. Eastern time, I emailed both uh, the All England Club and Neil simultaneously, pretty much, uh, saying, here's what I found. I'm publishing my story today. Please, your responses requested to these allegations because I didn't want to do it without giving them a, a chance to respond. In about 15 minutes, and this was still pretty early in the morning, so for all I knew, he was asleep or something. It was about maybe 8 a.m. his time. Uh, Neil and I were on the phone. Uh, he was on his way down to Eastbourne where he was covering the county, some county competition for tennis that's down there. So and he wrote stories about it actually that day. He still filed. And he and I talked for about half an hour about what I had found. And slowly I laid out for him all the things I'd found and sort of gave him a chance to tell his side of the story. So that was one of the questions I got was, did you talk to Neil? Did Neil know you were doing this? And the answer is 100% yes, because if you read the story, his quotes are in there, his side of the story is represented. And I actually heard from him fast forwarding a little bit after the story came out that he said, he texted me and he said, you know, I read the article. Thank you for quoting me accurately. It's what he is with his phrasing and, you know, letting me tell my side of it. I uh, wasn't comfortable to read, but thank you. So that's that. So with that part in mind, about within an hour of getting off the phone with me, Neil had sent a resignation letter to ITWA. And then that letter made it onto website for the blog, The Changeover. And that's when it's sort of people in the public or the general tennis fan public, I guess, yeah, for lack of a better word, found out about it. And that's when things really sort of started to spin pretty quickly. Yeah, it's been, I mean, I just remember that morning because obviously I think I was like pulling a sympathy all-nighter. <laughs> yeah, because I was like, cause I was, I, I will tell you, I mean, like, because Courtney was there for so much of this process and I was like, okay, about to send the email to Neil. Here we go. Email sent. Yeah. Okay, Neil's calling. Yeah, so. Yeah, so so I was aware of what was going on, obviously, and then, uh, and then like when the letter hit and hit the changeover, and the changeover posted it and then tweeted it. I think obviously that's when everybody that was awake at the time was like, "Wait, what?" You know, um, it came out of nowhere for people. I'm it sure it really did, and and absolutely, and it didn't have a lot of context. It wasn't clear what he exactly had done in the letter. Yeah, it, it it wasn't really explicit, and so obviously like the you know there's a lot of questions after that, and I was just kind of watching on Twitter, and and all the questions were the right questions, you know, like what's going on and you know, what happened, X, Y, Z. And I think a few people in Britain had the private eye thing. So that was being sent around. That started to come out just at the same time. I was really surprised that nobody just photographed it and put it on Twitter. Yeah. I don't think that ever happened. It is on Twitter. but It is on Twitter it now, wasn't, think, but yeah, it wasn't that day. Widely and that's, that's what I was saying with private eye. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> like hiding this thing and not putting up. Yeah. Anyway. Their but business yeah, is their business. Yeah, so so the thing with Private Eye kind of hit, and then Deadspin picked up on it off of the changeover because they got a tip, I guess, on their tip line or whatever. One day earlier. Yeah, one day I, earlier. Started, and really, randomly, because like I said, this was, what, how many, when did Wimbledon end? Wimbledon ended about two and a half weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So for everything to suddenly start peaking at the same time was strange. Yeah, no, it just, it made no, it, it, I was absolutely floored when... <laughs> when uh, the dead spin thing hit i was like what like how did like i i was i yeah i was floored um but yeah so dead spin picked up on it um and then a few hours after that i think is when your piece went live ben. yeah i will tell you that we were in the in this i was in the slate office when the dead spin thing hit we were like crap dead spin has it 
And we didn't know what they had at first, just that it had popped up. Not that being first was our main concern, because it really wasn't. We wanted to make sure it was airtight. But yeah, that was, uh, so that came, and then our story came. And I will tell you, as we were closing down the wire, there was a lot of very careful phrasing, like, okay, every single sentence. We were on the phone, Slate had their lawyers on speakerphone. They were, we were going over the story sentence by sentence to make sure every single allegation, accusation, insinuation, everything could be backed up by what we knew. And what we knew for reasons that we were supposed to have known them, essentially. Right. And that was very painstaking process to make sure that there was no uh, justification by which, uh, that's been, uh, sorry, by which Slate could be, or I, or whoever, could be sued for this or saying defamation or libel or whatever. And also, the lawyer was saying this several times because, and British people had warned me about this before I wrote the story, because um, a lot of people were honestly telling me not to do it. A couple of British people were saying, oh, I don't know, you want to be careful because we have these new defamation laws in Britain that are really, really strict, whatever. So there was a bit more painstakingness than there might have even other been, been otherwise for a domestic American story. And then my story hit. I sort of, Josh and I sort of shook hands and I walked out of the office and sort of a daze and wandered around the DuPont Circle neighborhood just sort of blankly. It was really hot out, just sort of staring at my phone, watching the stuff blow up for lack of a better term and yeah so you can sort of take that part of it from there because i was just sort of a bit of a zombie for the next five hours <laughs> yeah no and, and understandably so but um i hadn't slept in a while you guys because also that was a big <laughs> i was just tired it's still to this to this I'm to this tired. moment this you're still thing, exhausted like, i'm still like i feel like i'm still in been in fourth gear this whole time Right. And then, you know, I mean, in, in, in the aftermath of everything, obviously, you know, a lot of people have been asking about the reaction, you know, have we been surprised by it, disappointed by it? I mean, uh, so the main kind of tentpole things that happened were were um, what did happen in terms of reaction? I will say the first the first things were just like, wow, whoa, I can't believe that. Well, there's a lot of shock was the main reaction, first of all. And second of all, almost all the reaction that I got. And I know a lot of people have been very critical of people who've been critical of me, which I appreciate. Thanks guys. But the vast majority of people have understood what I did, why I did it and respected how I did it. And so I appreciate that. And this goes for a lot of different colleagues, a lot of different people within the tennis world. Like I've never gotten as many DMS in my life as I got <laughs> that day and emails and all sorts of stuff. And there were people who said, you know, Oh, you're just piling on. Like he already resigned. He admitted his mistakes. Um, well, I would say he wasn't going to admit his mistakes until I had my story come out. A. B. It's my job to be a reporter. It's not my job to withhold facts, which is what a lot of been happening before the story came out from a lot of different people. And C. Yeah. Not sorry. It, what happened with this in terms of that is that he essentially dug his own grave on this. And what happened is because he did it. Yeah. And and I think that it's, it's a difficult thing because there are, you know, like we said, there were whispers. I mean, this was something that was kind of just dis like discussed, you know, whether yeah. you're, you know, you heard it in the hallways or, you know, over coffee or or like late at night in the press room when there weren't many people left. Someone come up to you and be like, did you hear this thing? About yeah, this it, thing? it was a lot of like, did you hear? Did you hear? Yeah. What have Do you, you know? heard? Do you know? Like, you know, that sort of thing. And, and there were a lot of people who had more information than we did. And, you know, it just kind of took some time because I know that I don't know I, I felt like there was a lot of questions about the timing of why this all happened and happened the way that it did hopefully we've given you the timeline at least um, on our end of it for sure yeah you know and and, and things like that and and uh, on the timeline I will say that Neil and this is all in the article but just to refresh a little bit sorry earlier timeline Neil was called into a meeting 
that after Wimbledon got wind about the plagiarism, Neil called into a meeting in either late March or early April and told other British reporters that he was no longer doing the book by at the Davis Cup tie in Naples, which is in early April. So that's when it sort of disseminated, when it sort of got out into the world. And that's a long, that's three months before the end of Wimbledon. So there was a long time for this to incubate and grow. And I guess, I mean, I'll ask you this question, Ben, Mm -hmm. which is that, okay, so it happened and, you know, early end of March, early April, and, you know, it became kind of somewhat not public knowledge, but at least within the, I think the, the tennis community somewhat people. Yeah. And I'm, started, not, I'm not sure everybody knew about it. I'm sure there not were everybody people. knew. No, yeah. If you did like a, a overhead look of the press room. I'm sure it was like a checkerboard of who knew and who didn't. Right. Exactly. But I guess, I mean, the question is like, why, how do I phrase this? Um, why me? Yeah, exactly. Like That's... if all the, if all these people, so yeah. So the question is, you know, why you, if everybody yeah. knew and, and p- different people had an opportunity to like, why did you feel like, like it was a, still a story that you wanted to pursue or, or need, or felt you needed to pursue? I felt it was a story that I needed to pursue because first and foremost, I wasn't sure anybody else was going to. Uh, and that was because like I said, it had been a long time where no one else was doing anything. Number two, because of the looking that I'd done and just even choosing to order the 2011 book was a step that nobody else had taken. I mean, like nobody else was really, as far as I know, digging into it. People were happy to circulate whispers and keep the whispers going, but nobody else was really getting out a shovel and digging. So on terms of that, once I knew about the 2011 book, I absolutely had to do something about it because it was a violation. That's the thing we haven't talked about yet. This is not, I don't want to say it's not a victimless crime, but there are people whose work he stole and put his own name on top of. People who I'm friends with, people who I've been around in the press room with for a long time, people who he was friends with, different colleagues, different members of ITWA, if you want to make this an ITWA issue for the International Tennis Writers Association. A lot of different people, 52 pieces, people who did hard work and had that work disrespected and violated by him. And it did not sit well with me. And I was not content to let nothing happen. It was a weirdly sort of Serpico moment. It's not typically how I operate, but there you go. Fair enough. Yeah. So, so I mean, so that's kind of how, you know, the story uh, came to be. Obviously, the article goes up on Slate. And the interesting thing about it is I know that for myself, like when I was thinking about the story before you ended up writing it and publishing it, I was thinking, you know, do people really care? Isn't this kind of like an inside tennis sort of story? This doesn't yeah. affect forehands and backhands or favorites of Grand Slams or no players. No player is affected by this. Story, right. This really. doesn't affect anything. You know, this is really kind of one of those behind the scenes stories. And does it make sense then? I don't know. Like there was a part of me that was like outside of kind of the gossipy nature of things. Like, do people care? And so when the, the story went up, um, you know, the the headline and I, fr- I don't know what the, the word is for like the subtitle of the subheader, or whatever the subheader really called out Wimbledon. Yeah. Instead of really talking about, you know, Neil, Neil Harmon. Yeah. yeah. So I'm just kind of curious about how that came to be. And, and was that your idea to kind of move Wimbledon to the forefront of the story? Or was that Slate's idea? As we when we were talking about it, Courtney, I mean, both you and I, were both critical of Wimbledon the entire time because Wimbledon knew and didn't do anything about it. And that was clear very quickly in the story because they didn't do anything publicly about it. And Neil, they knew about the plagiarism before anybody else, Wimbledon. They quietly assigned the book to somebody else. They didn't even fire him. They just didn't rehire him the way that these sort of things work. He was still credential for the tournament. He was still invited to the champion's ball. And most scholarly of all, the book was still for sale in the gift shop and online, I believe. 
for quite a while until John Wertheim confronted them. And I think it's fair, especially when you're dealing with something like Wimbledon, which is a world-class institution, one of the most iconic sporting events in the world, that you have to almost hold institutions to a higher standard than individuals. Individuals make mistakes, but for an institution to do this, it took so many different people signing off on this mistake and knowing about it and doing nothing. And so I think, especially with sort of slates, there's a fairly political bend to a lot of it. So there's a lot of examining the behavior of institutions and organizations of power and influence. So I think that part of it probably influenced Wimbledon aspect as well. But I think nobody can say that Wimbledon handled this as upstandingly as they might have. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, going off of those three things, like A, that 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 he was still, Neil was still credentialed yep. for Wimbledon, despite, and that even though they knew, B, that he was invited to the Champions Ball, and C, that the, the annual continued to be on sale um, yeah. after, I mean, obviously... And I think bo- C- bonus, bonus D, he also wrote something for the program in 2014. And he also wrote, uh, yes, an Andy Murray piece in 2014 for the program. Of those, I feel like definitely like having the annual continue to be on sale is kind of the most damning. Yeah, for sure. Right? Because at that point, you're selling a product that you know to be plagiarized. Stolen property. You're reselling stolen property. Stolen, pro- yeah. You can't, I mean, that to me is the most galling. I think that to me is the one that kind of makes the hair on the back of my neck like stick up you know like where I'm just like wow like that was a poor poor decision and I will say how tough must it have felt for Wimbledon to yank the book that had Andy Murray kissing the trophy on the cover this was theoretically the most important annual Wimbledon history this year the 2013 one it was the historic Wimbledon and so maybe that was part of their thinking about well it's Andy's people still want to read about it so whatever who yeah. knows? It, it, it but, could be. I mean, I mean, yeah, whether it's 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 trying to sweep it under the rug, try to keep selling it, try to. I mean, they have so much money. I can't think it's like, oh no, if we yank it off the bookshelves, we're not going to, you know, money. make our budget this week or, or this this year or something like that. So I can't think it's that. But so that was the most damning to me. I will say, I think that okay, the fact that they credentialed they, that he was still credentialed to the tournament, I don't have as much of an issue with that simply because one of the, we got some questions about ITWA. So what is the International Tennis Writers Association? What are some of the perks? But well, one of the perks of being a, of, of being a member, and, and there's a lot of hoops that you kind of have to jump through to be a member, mainly that you need to attend and be credentialed to, to a, a lot of tournaments. insane number of tournaments. 15 tournaments in two years, including at least three slams. Yeah, that's tough. <laughs> That's tough for a lot of people. That's a pretty high bar. There's not a lot of people who clear that bar at all. Yes. And I will say there's a lot of people who've been grandfathered in who, because I think the rules used to be much less strict. Yes. And I think they've been intensified within the last few years. So there's a lot of people who maybe do three Grand Slams a year and maybe whatever their home tournament is in whatever country they're from or city they're from. Right. And so they don't hit that threshold. But yeah. yeah. So, so so Ben and I were admitted. We hit our 13 over two years, I think, last year. So this is our. I will say you were actually eligible for a year before you applied. (laughs) I was actually eligible for a year before I applied, and I intentionally didn't apply, and that's just me trying to be punk. But um, (laughs) you're so punk. I know it really was. There was a part of me that's like I don't, I don't know. And but one of the things, one of the reasons why I finally caved is that it does. There are perks, and and one of those perks is that you are you get automatically credentialed at any tournament you need you you want to cover. You can't, be you can't be refused. So the fact, so getting the reason why I mentioned that is because, like, yes, it's kind of easy to kind of focus on. Oh my gosh, he was credentialed, but he was an ITWA member at yeah. that moment. So I don't think the All England Club actually could refuse to credential him, even if they wanted to. It would have had to have been like, you know, he got his ITWA thing stripped away, and then. However, they could have filed a complaint to ITWA 
when they found out about it. True. And sort of asked her to be kicked out of Itwa. That could have happened. True. That 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 could have happened. But but uh, but yeah. Like I was, I'm just trying to be devil's advocate, like saying, okay, that that's not less bad. You know, that selling continuing to sell the annual the worst in the scale of things. But and, yeah. And, look, and on the Itwa point, because he resigned from Itwa, he could now theoretically have his credential rejected by the U.S. Open. Theoretically. Yeah. He would not have that protection anymore. We should also point out, just zooming ahead a little bit, we're kind of no chronology left in the story now, but he has been suspended um, officially from the Times of London uh, pending an inquiry into his actions and who knows what that entails and who knows how long that's going to take. But it's entirely possible that they just don't choose to send him this year. They send somebody else. At the end of the day, what he did, like I I admit, I was very surprised that he got suspended by the Times Mm -hmm. because as uh, as of right now, based on the evidence that's on the table, he didn't plagiarize the Times. Yeah, like that, he, he, he did nothing about that. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, like we at this point, there's no evidence that he he plagiarized in the columns that he wrote for the Times. What he did was a side contract that he had with Wimbledon. Another one of the questions that we got quite a bit was there's there was kind of a from fans is is how did this go unnoticed for so long? Yeah. How in the world did he, you know, do this for it? And, and again, Ben only looked through three books. Yeah. The other seven and... books are currently in transit via Amazon <laughs> um, and will be arriving in some order at my house. And at some level, I'll be like, what do I do with this? But if next time I go to the mailbox, there's like a 2005 annual in there. What do I do with that? I don't, I, yeah. I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to do with it. Yeah. So, yeah, the basic answer, I think, is that not a lot of people read these books. Yeah. I'll be perfectly honest. This was a vanity project for Wimbledon. The tennis writers didn't really care about. I, and, and, we, I was and, never rushing to read the annual to see what Neil wrote. And that's no disrespect to Neil or Wimbledon. Just, it's not something that I need to do in my job. It's a book that comes out months after the tournament come, ends and doesn't reveal new information usually. And I guess on some um, – and it's not a cheap book. No. It's, it's like, like 20 pounds. Bucks. Yeah. 20, yeah, it's like 30, 30 $40. Why would – any tennis writer really um or j- tennis journalist especially one who covered the actual event no. fork out 40 bucks to read about something that they were there at yeah. <laughs> and covered on a daily basis and wrote about on a daily basis it doesn't make sense so and and that so that's one side of thing the thing but the other thing too is that like even for me somebody i mean two of my passages ended up in the the 2013 book I have to say, if I was reading the book, I don't think I would have reckon- remembered that I wrote that. <laughs> especially, because, I will say, especially because the ones you did were not very colorful passages. Like, yeah, they you, weren't. They were, mostly, they, they were live blog passages that recounted action. Exactly. It was yeah. just like, but the way that I described it is, I mean, it's very clear that they were lifted. But, like, I was just like, huh, like, it would never have occurred to me. And so I think that that's the big thing is is that there's there's just a very, I mean, I would be curious to know how many of these things Wimbledon actually sells. I, I don't know. I've heard, but... though, I've had people respond to me in things being like, wow, I get one of these every year for Christmas. I can't believe this. I had more than one person say that. Wow, okay. Being like, this is like a thing that every year I get the Wimbledon yearbook and I have a shelf full of them. And it is kind of, I mean... They're pretty books, especially... They're pretty books. The especially photos the, are amazing. The, last two, um, the 2011 book is made by a different publisher, and it's just not as... There's not as much thought put into the layout, but the last two books are actually really, really attractive, and I think they've actually sort of won some awards for that, for the sort of design of it, 
which are no, they look good. Yeah, they look, yeah, they they look, look really good. nice. The photography is really cool and the layout's good. You know, it's just that a lot of the text was lifted. <laughs> oops. But, Except oops, for that. But, you know, I mean, they're, 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 I mean, they're nice little coffee table books. Yeah. Like if you're a tennis geek and you love Andy Murray, like why not have the 2013 Wimbledon annual? It's the annual to have. And there are other, so, yeah. other things to do this too. Davis Cup is an annual book. Yes. Fed Cup, I think, has one. I'm not sure if there are any others. I mean, it, that, it, I think the way that you described it is is quite right, that it's a vanity project. You know, I mean, like, in this day and age, I mean, does it serve an actual purpose? No, because it's the Internet. If I want to know what happened on day four of Wimbledon 2012, I can Google it yeah. <laughs> and find out what happened. Or I can read my favorite writer's write up of what happened that day or something like that. But, um, yeah, so so I definitely understood the questions about that but i mean that's my theory is just that there's just not a lot of people reading it and the people who are reading it are not people who would have known or been able to pick up on anything plagiarized yeah and you kind of yeah. and you really because it's not like it suddenly switches into a different font it suddenly goes from like nine arial to 12 roman and you're like <laughs> yeah. when you normally copy paste something and it looks incongruous i mean it is the edges are smoothed out totally yeah. in the text and you really i think you have to be looking for it on some level to find it yeah. um because for everything else that Neil didn't do. He did write some nice transition sentences. So one question which I've asked a few times and had a little bit of trouble immediately answering is, in wake of all this, Courtney, and everything's happened, as we sit here a couple days later, do you have sympathy for Neil? In so much of kind of like how I've kind of been processing everything that's happened over the last like week, I have to be honest, I Neil like wasn't really what I was thinking of. Yeah. During most of it, you know, I mean, to me, it's been a lot about text. It's been a lot about like, oh, my gosh, like this text looks like that text. And I it just didn't really I know that obviously that there's a human being who did this and, and he is a person who has been perfectly friendly with me and uh, polite and yeah. fine. You know, like I, I don't have a problem with. Yeah. And we should say that now, like before, because I think some people were like, oh, you know, well, Rothenberg and Harmon have like a longstanding beef like. That's just not really true at all. It's no, really, really not true at all. I mean, like, yeah. okay, there was one subtweet about Peter Wozniacki when I thought he wrote a crappy story about that. Other than that, we've always gotten along perfectly fine. And that's that. And people don't see us in our office being totally collegial, making like happy small talk like anybody else. He was no different than anybody else in that room who was in yeah. the English speaking press corps. Small group of people, especially Neil, because Neil traveled a lot. Yeah. Neil got sent to a lot of different tournaments, more than any other Brits, I think. He was in Istanbul. He was a lot of places, which is part of, honestly, what made reporting the story so difficult and so conflicting. It's that I knew exactly who had done this, and I knew everybody involved. Yeah. And that was not easy. Although I will say there were a lot of British writers who I'd never heard of who got their stuff taken from. But anyway. <laughs> yes. Kind of like the, well, it's Wimbledon. where so Wimbledon. A, a lot of British papers sent four or five reporters to the Wimbledon, so I wouldn't have heard of all of them. Right. But yeah. So that was what made it honestly tough. Is that I had never was looking for how do I get Neil? What might Neil's weakness be? Maybe I'll look in the annual. That was never anything like that. <laughs> yeah. Right. No. And and that's the thing. And so now, like, uh, obviously, as I think about it, and it, obviously, like, you, I do feel sympathy for Neil. I, I feel bad that this is happening. I feel bad that he did it. I'll put it that way. That was my oh, that's, mostly That's answer. a fair way to put it. I wish, he hadn't, I wish he hadn't it. done it. Yeah. You know, but at the end of the day, yeah. I mean, it's, I just know that when I would kind of sit and think about it, before the story came out and just when we just kind of were starting to get to know the facts and and, and after, especially after I, I found my own stuff in the annual, I just was like, man, like, you know, 
there are a lot of hardworking people in that room, people who are there from first ball to last ball, who do everything the right way, who, 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 you know, don't even come close to the line when it comes to breaching ethics, who, who play the game fair. In a lot of ways, it's not unlike the tennis, actual tennis player world, where it's like, we're all competitors, and we all, you know, work hard, we're all trying to beat each other. But at the end of the day, we're, I mean, yeah, I can I can confidently say we're all fine with each other. Like we're all perfectly we go out for drinks, we go out to dinner, like there's no ill will. But then kind of remembering that is just there are a lot of people who work hard in that room and who do a great job of what they do and and I just feel like the lingering kind of bad taste in my mouth is feeling like and I'm not necessarily talking about myself. I'm talking about all the other people. Like they worked hard and they worked to I don't know not have their stuff stolen. Sorry. Yeah. Like, I, there's no real way around it for and, me. I, and I will point out this point because it seems like a point to do it. Not that this is the focus of it at all. But there is a monetary aspect of, it, aspect of this. I mean, Neil got paid to write these books. for He did it for 10 years. From every estimate I've heard, I've heard a lot of different people in the industry went on this. He probably made over $100,000 doing these books over the course of this, which is not insignificant money at all, especially in this really dwindling journalistic climate. So. Yep. That matters to people, and it matters that it matters that somebody else is getting that money from a relatively limited supply that goes to writers in less than upstanding ways. Yeah, and and you know there's there is kind of the aspect as well of like when you start talking about the the money side of things that you know there are a lot of different you know kind of money opportunities you know whether it's writing for programs, writing books, like things like that. But there's also a limited number of hours in the day and days in a week and weeks in a month and months in a year. And there are times where like somebody comes to me and says, Hey, can you write, would you be interested in writing this? And I will pay you X amount of money. And I'm like, I would love to write that. And I would love to have that X amount of money, but I do not have time. Yeah. I can't, I don't have time to do that. And then all the other things that I need to do. And that's kind of then obviously limits the amount of monetary income i make doing like my any job. like any job pretty much right that's on any sort of time scale basis so really. so that if you if you allow and this is taking things into the abstract okay because i'm not I'm, I'm really trying not to make this person like discuss it to where it sounds like yeah. it's personal because it's not but if you take it into the abstract you know effectively what was done was that an, a, a business opportunity or a, a, mon- a monetary opportunity was like taken off the table by someone who basically didn't have the time to do it, but found a way to cut corners or chose not to have the time to do it. Yeah, sure. Either way, but didn't have the time to do it and cut corners and then still uh, on the backs of others Yeah, and then still reaped a monetary reward. Whereas if that person were to say, you know what, I don't have the time to do it, then that opportunity goes to somebody else who can do it properly have the time to do it. And that's kind of what's fair in a fair marketplace. Yeah. You know? And so I don't know. I mean, it's tough, you know, I mean, there's just a lot of different emotions surrounding it. And and some of it's intellectual, like purely intellectual. And some of it's, Mm -hmm. it's, um, you know, emotional, and you try and separate the two. And then at the same time, understand where the those two also intersect where they should as we're getting to as yeah, as we're getting to all that one thing we haven't touched on, which I know we said before, we talked about it's sort of the cultural differences this that this case study exposes in particular, a plagiarism incident, because we as Americans, obviously, as you can tell, we're a little bit worked up about this, and we have been for a while, and it's something that we take very seriously, especially on this scale. But it doesn't seem to be at all as considered a as serious an offense in the UK, nor in a few other countries, especially Italy. When I was talking <laughs> to Italians about it, they were like, 
okay, and he copied, if someone copied nine paragraphs from me, I think, okay, he likes my writing, okay, thank you. <laughs> it's like, no, that's not our approach to it at all. Maybe that was, and that's part of the other thing I will say, is that, putting out to, again, like, the why me aspect of this, why did we, me, you, John Wertheim, whoever else, Americans, have to do a story that was almost entirely British? Like, why did the ranks close in this fashion? This goes to what we were talking about Wimbledon on the show last time, too. Wimbledon is an environment that is particularly controls its own way and has the moderators and does things their own way. Um, and it's really not trying to rock the boat ever or make change. But why? I don't know. Just sort of however you want to take that that yeah. premise, Courtney. What where what does this say about the differences on different cultures and how they approach all this stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it's abundantly clear at this point that that Americans take these sorts of things, plagiarism, incredibly seriously, right? I mean, yeah. just the just last night, yeah. uh, BuzzFeed, a website that is kind of premised on stealing <laughs> and not really giving proper attribution. I mean, all of their photo posts and gift posts and whatever, a lot of times that stuff is not properly attributed or whatever. But anyways, their political editor, Benny Johnson, I'm going to say his name is. That's correct, yep was found to have plagiarized 40 different times in some in about 500 posts that he wrote for BuzzFeed. A lot of, and I will say, from what I can tell, much smaller and more scattered instances than what Neil did. And on top of that, I will also add most of, at least of what I understand Benny Johnson did, is that a lot of it was like cribbing from like Wikipedia or like Yahoo Answers, like yeah. kind of general knowledge database type thing. Not taking from someone else's work. Right, it, I mean, we can, yeah, you know, but you guys yeah. know what we mean, right? Like a byline right. versus like kind of a general, like whatever. Anyways, yeah. and he was fired. He was fired like almost immediately from when it was discovered. They did a quick uh, investigation. They found 40 instances. They let him go. And they, and then on top of that, they wrote an apology to the readers. And they also wrote an internal memo to the staff basically saying like, we need to be better than this. And this sort of yeah. plagiarism is not acceptable. So that's you know, kind of, at least for maybe foreign listeners, that that's kind of the, the, the framework within which the states works. Now, yeah. I think that in a lot of ways, kind of the disconnect between how maybe plagiarism is viewed in Britain, because like, you know, one of the British writers who was um, cited heavily, or not cited heavily, not cited heavily, but had his stuff lifted um, for these annuals, uh, uh, kind of shrugged his shoulders, I think it was at first when he first heard about it, he did. Oh, did he not after? He, he said, "This is we're talking about Barney Rene, who's a guy who writes for the uh, Guardian, right? Yeah. Who um, sent a tweet, being at first like, I don't see what this is. He stole a bit. And I think he was being a little bit sarcastic too. Mm. I think he was like, oh, they stole a bit of my writing, like, <laughs> whatever. Like, what? Mostly the question is like, why would you take from me? I'm terrible. <laughs> it's a little bit of his tone, um, which is sort of the same self-deprecating tone you took yeah. recently. Yeah. Um, so it's that same sort of reaction or coping mechanism where they're like why me that's dumb yeah i do think in other things he was like i just read the article never mind oh really oh okay he did say there were other things he said that were more sort of like i get it now okay and just by chance by the way because this was actually something that just to go more behind the scenes i had 52 examples of plagiarism to choose from to put in the article and i didn't really notice until near the end that i just happened to pick two of his Mm. um out of the three it was an intentional choice but those were ones that I'd already typed up to show other people and different things. Because, I mean, people who said I piled on, no. I published three of the 52, and then five of the 52. I still have 44 examples of this that I haven't published yet. That seems like withholding and showing great restraint. And I and I will say, kind of 
tack, tacking onto that is that it just it's a completely different feeling when you move it from an abstract oh plagiarism yeah to oh my gosh look at this in black and white and look at the side by side and yeah. they're identical that's really where it becomes egregious to me i mean just going through and doing the 2013 like at first it was like okay i found one okay i found two and then as it kept happening i'm like oh my gosh like this is i mean i could just feel myself being like oh my gosh this is bad it's surreal like it's surreal yeah it really is it really really is but anyways getting back to kind of the cultural difference question question yeah um i do think that it does highlight that and maybe i'm wrong on this this is just my personal opinion based on what i've seen is that in the UK things are a bit, things are driven more by relationships than in the US where things are driven a little bit more by merit. That's fair. So Very fair. so within Britain, you know, tennis writing it's a it's a relatively small gig and once you get in there and you get the gig and you get one of those, you know, coveted five or six seven spots as like a chief course a tennis correspondent for a major british paper and there are more of like, them by the way than us in terms of full-time correspondents for tennis i think yeah for, they, definitely they, per capita there's so many more brits yeah and they get paid to fly around everywhere and um it's a pretty good gig yeah but and a but, lot of them are they're, so, and they're really most of them are all really good what they do oh yeah oh absolutely absolutely without saying yep and so yeah like it, it when something like this happens it's tougher I, th- I feel like for them because it, it's so relational it's like that's my guy that's my guy who I've known forever and you know we've traveled the, the world together and we've been in press rooms for over 30 years and, and I will say the way the British operate they're much more collaborative with each other than we are they will do joint interviews as groups and then sort of work together to figure out what is getting released when and there's a teamwork among them that we just don't have in the American model at all for better or for worse Exactly, for better or for worse. I mean, sometimes it's like, wow, that looks really awesome. It looks really easy. Like, wait, that other guy typed up all your stuff for you? That looks nice. Yeah, yeah. you know, but but that's just not how, I mean, America, no. we're hyper competitive and we are like, you know, it's like, no, Ben, if you want, you want to interview Isner, no, you can't come with me, even though I have an inter- Isner interview. I put in the request. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I put in the request. I got the okay. I'm not giving you anything. Like, you know, yeah. and this is like my friend. Like, and you know, I don't, I'm not, I don't, not offended. I know that's how it works. Like, and uh, if anything, we don't ask. Yeah. <laughs> like, we, I would never ask that of Ben, and Ben would never ask that of me. And, and so there's just kind of that. So I think that. When, it, when you look at kind of like how things are treated with respect to the plagiarism thing, I think like for us, it just seems like a comp- we see it as like a competitive punch to the gut, like an ethical, like this system, our system only works if everybody's being ethical because we're all competing. Whereas in the Brit system, because it's a little bit more relational and because it's a little bit more collaborative, there is a little bit more of a blurring of the lines. There's more politics involved. And not only that, like it used to be, and Neil was saying this to me when he was, uh, when we were talking on the phone, like Neil used to literally assign who got to write different articles for Wimbledon program. I mean, he had a lot of different roles within British tennis. He would be like, okay, you can write this article on this and you can do this on that. I mean, it's a very different, and that would never happen with one of the normal beat writers in America assigning US Open program articles. I can't ever see that happening, you know? Yeah, I guess. It's just just a much more tangled thing and there are much more reasons why people sort of couldn't afford to possibly burn a bridge there. It'd be much, they, they felt much more timid in terms of doing that. 
Yeah, I think that that's probably true. I mean, I, 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 because I think that my observation is that the Brit system is is a little bit more of like a, I don't know, kind of like a, kind of like a hermetically sealed, like container. Okay. Like, like they have like here's our body of writers, and this is what we do, and we all kind of, whether explicitly or implicitly, agree that we kind of just do our thing. Yeah. Whereas I feel like, you know, it, obviously it's and, it's the same point I'm getting at, which is just that we're like really competitive. And to use a different term, a lot a lot of yeah, and to use a different term, a lot of people refer to the Brits as more of a boys' club in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just sort of more, you know, yeah, boys' club, what that term is. It, they're more chummy. They're more protective of each other. They're more, we make the rules for our group, and that's how we operate, and it's very hard to break into this group if you're an outsider in Britain. Yeah. I mean, I, I just remember talking to a bunch of people, like a bunch of my friends in the U.K. about, you know, tennis writing and their tennis bloggers or tennis tweeters and I would just kind of ask them, you know, like, could a tennis blogger, because obviously my background, I was a tennis blogger. I had a second career. I had another career. And I just kind of did it. And and Ben as well. We both had the same thing. We were outsiders who became insiders fairly quickly in the big scheme of things. And not not because we had, like, an uncle in the business. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and so I would ask, like, my British friends, like, you know, could that happened in the UK and every there's not a single person who said yes. They're like, no, that would never happen here. There's no way an outsider, a blogger or like whatever could break in. You have to earn your keep. You have to work yourself into the system. You have to kind of like, they have to let you, yeah, they have to let you in. And whereas, you know, the U S system for better, again, this is all for better or worse. You can make judgment calls either way. Whereas in the U S system, it's like, yeah, I got a laptop. And I've got an internet connection and I'm going to open up a type pad account and I'm going to start writing. And if the market dictates that somehow, you know, people think that that I could do something more than that, then great. And if not, then I won't. But, you know, you don't really need to shoehorn or like, you know, glad hand to get your way in. You really yeah. don't. Yeah. I mean, I really I personally didn't. You didn't either. And nope. so at least in our two examples, that's how we how we see this whole sort of thing um we talked about this for quite a while um going any just general lessons is there a moral of the story here in this story like we said it's not entirely clear what will happen to neil's job at the u.s open to how people react to it there i mean i will say i don't know if i said this already but i've gotten a lot of really really supportive feedback from a lot of different people in the tennis world journalists uh agents tour representatives whoever and definitely a lot of fans. So I definitely appreciate all that. Um, but yeah, so I want to say that because I hadn't said that really. Um, going forward, what is there a moral of the story here? Don't plagiarize. Yeah, basically that's pretty much it. Don't do this. I, you know, I, that's that's really just what it is. It, it, I just feel like every day that we that that we do this job, writing about tennis and being a tennis writer, it's a pretty sweet gig. You know, and, and that's coming from somebody who doesn't have it like as sweet as other people have it. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're not getting meals expense and staying in four star hotels and flying business class around the world at all at the expense of our employer, which some people are. Yeah. And, and I mean, our, our entire podcast should probably just be sponsored by Airbnb. <laughs> but anyways, it's not about that. It, but it's a sweet gig, you know, and, and it, but every day that you do it, we have a tremendous amount of, of power in a lot of ways to write about players in a certain way. A lot of freedom. We really, we have a lot of freedom. And with that, 
not to be all Spider-Man, he comes responsibility. And and you do have to make those decisions every single day to, you know, stay within the lines, play fair, play, you know, the right way. And, and you can't cut corners. And that's really just, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if we need, if, te- if journalists, I'm not just saying tennis journalists, but across the board, like just people who write, whether you're in academia or in journalism or whatever, that needed a reminder of it. But yeah, I mean that's that's kind of the upshot for me is just just don't plagiarize. I will say I've heard I saw a couple people being like, yeah, but everybody does this in tennis. Everyone knows that all the tennis writers are shit and that you know this kind of thing happens. No, this does not happen. There is I cannot begin to fathom there are other people doing anything like this on the scale he was doing it at all. It this was an aberration and not anything near the norm. And almost yeah, everybody that's... else is not. This is not representative of what tennis writers do as a people or what we try to what values you try to uphold. I really refuse to believe that. No, I refuse to believe it. I don't accept that. And I and I do think that that's one of the big, you know, kind of disappointing things to come out of all of this is that feeling like the thing that you do and the people that you work with and whether they're your competitors or your coworkers, at the end of the day, we all work together. We're coworkers in a way. You know, there's a lot of people who whether somebody's good or shit that's a judgment call yeah. on everybody's on every different level. But there are people in there who work incredibly hard and, and who do it with a passion for the sport and who want, who do things the right way. And those people should not have to defend what they do because of one completely outlier incident. And that's what this is. I, I, I don't think that this is a, you know, a, a systematic problem. Within tennis, there it reveals some systematic problems. It, it starts to how this was allowed to happen. You can you right. can dig and get a little bit, find some ugly things if you want to turn over different rocks. I don't deny that. Right, but but overall, in terms of like yeah. everybody plagiarizes. Uh, no. <laughs> no. So yeah. So to wrap up, as we said, this is not something that we are glad happened. This is not something that we take joy in having discovered or that we're gloating about at all. Um, but it did happen and that's that. And hopefully it won't happen again. So I'm sure there are probably a lot of you who didn't care nearly as much about that whole thing as we did, but we are inside this world and our apologies if you were not one of those. Otherwise, hopefully you found it somewhat interesting. We're going to talk a little bit about actual tennis now. Kinda. We haven't done a show in a couple weeks because we did our two-part question show spaced out over a few weeks because we thought it would be a slow time in the calendar. And we were mostly right, except for a couple things. The first of which is an article that came out in Elle magazine, a profile of Sloane Stevens. Courtney, why don't you tell people who haven't read that what that was all about? Try to make sense of that. So it's an article written by Lizzie Goodman for Elle. And Lizzie Goodman is not a hack. She's actually a really... A really good writer. She's written about like uh, female sexuality issues before pop culture. One of my favorite like kind of music writers. She writes a lot about bands and stuff. But anyways, she's like a legit thing. So anyway, she did this profile on Sloane Stevens, and it was kind of a very interesting <laughs> profile to say the least. Found out things Basically, I did not know about Sloane Stevens. So many things that I did not know. If you haven't had a chance, definitely Google it. Just Google Sloane Stevens L. Um, and it'll pop up. And E-L-L-E, just so people know, E L L E. It's a four page article, so don't stop reading after the first page. There's more. Even if you want to stop reading, and I understand if you do. Yeah. But basically, I mean, how do you even summarize this article? I mean, the I mean the kind of flashpoint moments are Sloane talking about uh, her visiting her gynecologist. Yep. 
and her gynecologist being a tennis fan and getting excited about Indian Wells. And Sloane gives the money quote of, she's looking in my vajay. So there's that. Also a, a cameo appearance by boyfriend uh, Jack Sock um, and discussion of birth control. So there is that. And a dildo gets mentioned. Yeah. There is that. So, yeah, I mean, basically, those are kind of like the juvenile. Other, thing, other things that seem just like juvenile behavior in terms of the autograph stuff. I don't know if you're going to mention that. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. In terms of like being complaining about signing autographs, in terms of generally acting diva-ish in, in Lizzie's estimation, having spent time with her. And Lizzie clearly being turned off by a lot of what she saw from Sloan. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. And that was the real sense that I got from the article is that Lizzie Goodman showed up and thought she was going to get, you know, let's talk about this. Well, she says it right here, which is kind of perfect. When I arrive in Los Angeles to meet this newly anointed princess of American tennis, I'm at some level expecting Grace Kelly. Instead, I get Cher Horowitz, who yeah. is the uh, protagonist of Clueless. Yeah. So, yeah, and kind of continues to try and basically spend the piece trying to figure out Sloane Stevens and what is her personality. And if you strip away all of the kind of, you know, gag type stuff that's in there, you know, just like the yeah, dildos. All, yeah, dildos and everything like that. I think that 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 a lot of the questions that she does ask are the right ones to ask and, and ones that I think, you know, we who were who are around Sloane quite a bit within tennis, you know, struggle with. In a lot of ways. And I think this is the, the 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 kind of money paragraph for me of the entire piece, which I'm just going to read because I think it's really great. And this is after Sloan is talking about how she got her earrings for che- less than Caroline Wozniacki and how she got ripped off. Yeah, yeah get, Wozniacki got ripped off. And she says that, like, you know, she's glad she didn't go to college because, like, well, my friends have to say they, they're going to class. I'm like, I'm going to go take a nap. So then Lizzie uh, Goodman writes, while the reporter in me might be expected to consider it a score to witness this kind of unscripted attitude, an inside look at the real Sloan. I feel a mix of discomfort and skepticism, discomfort because her behavior triggers memories of my own selfish adolescent moments and skepticism because I don't fully buy the cartoonish brattiness. It seems like some kind of unconscious ploy to put people at a distance to keep expectations low. And I think that, yeah, those are the kind of the two things is like we kind of I know for myself, I kind of struggle with sometimes, which is that like Sloan's great copy. Like, you know, she writes these, she says these things. They're funny quotes. They easy to write about. And, you know, it works. But but there is a part of me that just continues to believe that that kind of the That's defense mechanism. Yeah. The I don't care. I'm over it. Like whatever that sort of not allowing herself to be vested in something to actually care is is a defense mechanism. It, it is a way to protect herself from being hurt. And uh, and then the rest of the article does talk about, you know, kind of her, her difficult background with her father and stepfather and everything like that. But anyway, it's a must read. Definitely do it. But but that's enough of me talking. How about you, Ben? What was your take? I, my take is basically I agree with everything you said. Sloan is one of the toughest people to write about um, because she says things that don't seem to gel with what you think or even a lot of times it seems like she doesn't say what she thinks and and obviously when she does go off script and into more genuine if you want to call them that like lizzie refers to the real sloan that she can say some things that are kind of shocking i don't know it, it, she i find her one of the most difficult players to cover yeah. really in terms of personality in terms of what she presents in terms of her results and but also the even just results wise i mean she has so many highs and lows and different ways you can frame her results to make her a totally different player. 
she's you know beat Serena, made a semi, but she's never made a final of anywhere. Like, what do you do with that? I don't know. I find her a very enigmatic player. Also, on 81B, which we recorded two weeks ago, we were talking about how Sloane, we thought, had split with Paul Anacombe, but she was denying it. The day that all the Neil stuff came out, it also was finally made official by Sloane's agent that she had indeed split with Anacombe. So, I mean, there's some reliable narrator issues on a lot of that with Sloane in everything. It makes her a tricky person to to keep track of for someone who's the American number two and a very relevant player, like it or not, on the WTA. It's she's she's tough. And this article, I think, really did a great job of sort of summing up why she is so complicated to try to write about. And I think Lizzie's use of first person in that really exposed that well. Yeah, because it, it is kind of a weird I don't know exactly what she wrote is exactly what I, I find myself thinking a lot when I'm sitting in her press conferences or if I'm watching a match or like what is, whatever it is of just kind of like. Like, is this you or is that you or who, what what am I seeing and, and, and what is what are we talking about? You know, and I never really feel like when I'm writing about Sloan that I that I'm really capturing all of that. Yeah. Or, or even her, you know, so many times um, it almost just seems easier to just say Sloan said this. I'm not saying that it's true or not. I'm saying I'm just saying Sloan said it. Yeah. You, you know, and yeah. you decide. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's what she means. You know, I mean, you know, some of the more reliable narrators um, in tennis, you, when they say something, you can kind of you think about it. and You're like, yeah, that, that sounds about right. You know, I, I do think this is what you're thinking. I do think genuinely that Anna Ivanovich believes it's a process. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, I don't think she's an unreliable narrator. She may be like delusional at times, but I don't think that that's and an unreliable not she... tennis player. Right. Exactly. Narrator. But that's genuinely what she believes is what she's telling you. Whereas, and she may be wrong, but that's what she believes. Whereas, yeah, it's just tough with Sloan. And it was just very interesting to see somebody who kind of came from the outside. Totally have that same reaction. Exactly. That, that it was weirdly comforting, <laughs> and especially in a non press conference setting that she had that reaction over three days. But yeah, so all, all that is to say, like read it read it and we'll see if it if it was an eye-opener for sloan early on i have no indication that it was but we'll see uh she's in washington this week i'll be there with her and you'll be in sanford with a much better wta field and we'll compare notes at the end uh sloan is now working with thomas hogstead on something of a trial basis a story that was first broken by matt cronin much to our delight i think Matt, by the way, we haven't talked about in a while. I think we talked about him uh, when he first uh, was forced off the tour with his uh, brain tumor issues. Uh, from the first off the tour, from the writer side of it, obviously, Matt still manages to <laughs> get bored and break news about Sloane Stevens. Like it's so it's, great. It's I was so happy when that happened. I really yeah. was. And talk about it not being like we're ever competitive, but I was so happy about that. No, because it was a funny thing. Because I think like. You know, I think both you and I had heard different, you know, heard whisper again, whispers of like, oh, it may be Hogstedt, like whatever, and but yeah. couldn't get confirmation to where it could run. Just like I was, uh, you know, for a while trying to get confirmation about the Anacone thing since, you know, Wimbledon and wasn't able to get anybody on record to, to say that it, things were done or like whatever. But anyways, yeah. And then Matt literally was like, I don't know. I woke up at 5 a.m. So I was bored. So <laughs> I decided to break coaching news. <laughs> I'm like, dude, you're freaking insane, yo. And but, I should say, for those of you wondering, he, I've, I talked to to Matt recently. He's 
doing seems to be doing very well. I haven't seen him in person yet, but signs are good. He's not just he's getting steadily better and showing that along the way he can still break Hogshead nude because why not? <laughs> because why not? And it was so thing- casual. It was so it was so tremendous. Yeah. It was so great. And the thing about it, too, that kind of like um, was like after that, I was kind of emailing with him a little bit. And he was, you know, he's obviously hoping to to be able to get back on tour soon. But he was like, yeah, you know, like, I just I don't know if I'll be able to to win the tournament, but I'll maybe just a, a brave showing in the first round, maybe win a match. I'm yeah. like, oh, Matt, you know, so yeah. so shout out to Matt Cronin. Um, Matt, Matt, lo- Matt loves his tennis and, and we love Matt and we hope he comes back soon. And he's a a presence we definitely, definitely miss in the room. Yeah. Last thing, Bernard Tomic won a tournament? I don't think Hold we on. saw this coming. Yes, but here's the thing. Bernard Tomic won a tournament. That's one thing. Bernard Tomic played a tournament like he cared. The whole time. That I did not see coming. And like really cared. And like, was like really throw, cared. Like throwing himself into full body fist pumps, collapsing to the ground after victory, you know, shouting, screaming, you know, arguing calls out of really wanting to have won that point. I mean, it was atomic transformed. He had dropped out of the top 100. He got a wild card into Bogota, and he won Bogota. It put him back in the top 100. It really could have been a turning point in his career. I kept saying that. I mean, we'll see what he does after this. It could be. It could have been a one-off, for all we know. It could have been something in the Colombian water. But <laughs> he looked like a totally different player, and it reminded me, once again, which is the whole thing with Atomic, like, why we care. And yeah. it goes a little bit with Sloan, too. Sloan has shown this upside, this potential when she's at her best. And it's why we care about her and why we are willing to wade through the difficulties, which for a lesser player would be complete deal breakers and we would just, you know, forget about them. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting and just a crazy week ahead. So many people, for some reason, it was just a trend. Some people were like screen capping the Bogota run. It was like, he did what? Like, look at the visual evidence I produced that Bernard Tomic had this reaction to something. And that was the thing is that to me, it was about the attitude. It wasn't about the title. It was about the attitude. He didn't beat anybody in particular. That's how it was Yeah. I mean, and, and, but what was really, what I just kept thinking while I was watching it all was like, maybe just maybe, and this goes with the Sloan discussion that we just had. Tomic has learned that it's cool to care. Yeah. It's actually really cool to care, dude. It's okay. Put yourself on the line. Show that you want it. And yeah, you might lose and be horribly disappointed. But the upside of 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 like if you invest and if you work and if you do it the right way and, and you put yourself out there and you win, I mean, the the reward is so much bigger than the risk. And, you know, I do see you see this sometimes with the kid that the younger kids, right? I mean, this is kind of the whole generation of, you know, millennials and whatever is after the millennials. I don't know where they draw the line on that, but where there's this like kind of like ironic, a lack of earnestness. Yeah. It's not cool to care about things, you know, and it's the best. It's cool to just be able to stand in the corner and shrug things off. Yeah. I mean, that's not even a millennial thing. That's a teenager thing. Yeah. Let's be honest. Right. Like that's let's hold in Caulfield, basically. Hopefully, you know, this is this is Bernard Tomic, you know, realizing that it's okay. You know, who knows if like a Kyrgios like did, you know, kind of motivated him. Even a Hewitt. Hewitt and Kyrgios both had big runs before Tomic did this. Yeah. And I will say on Sloan also, I saw her at World Team Tennis and she seemed she was so much more emotive and looked so much more comfortable in that environment of being like on a team where everyone's actively clapping for her and like the arena's cheering and it doesn't really matter. Like 
those she was like outwardly fist pumping like looking to them for support and didn't look at any point let me look like i have a really low pulse right now and look like i'm over it it was some reason that just really worked for her and it made me hope that maybe and it was after the l article also it made me hope that maybe something i don't know clicked we'll see with sloan it's gonna be a very interesting u.s open series for her it it is it definitely is so those are the only real on-court things quick shout out speaking of young people doing well to the young people who've done well recently Kanye making semis in Istanbul, uh, Sasha Zverev making the semis in Hamburg, which is a 500, a 17-year-old boy. That doesn't happen anymore on ATP. And Borna Koric as well. Just a quick roundup of names to give honorable mentions to, who maybe not a whole segment. but And it, and Just, it, it does seem like a moment where the kids are stepping up. Yeah, and I, I think that one of the, the great things, especially with the guys, with, with, with Koric and with Zverev, is that they still look like boys. Oh, yeah. They're so young. Looking. You know, it, it's not like the like Ryan Harrison never looked as young as he was. Like yeah. he kind of always had he just always looked physically really mature. But good golly, I thought Zverev's legs were going to snap in half. Like those toothpick thingies on clay during his yeah. Hamburg run. Uh, Korich also just still looks really young. So it almost in a way like kind of is like, and there's more to come. Like they will physically develop and they will be even better. But seriously impressive stuff. Very, very good. And so the future future is bright and happy things are hopefully in store for us. I mean, that's I mean, I think you can always sort of have faith in the future of tennis so long as it's a sport that people can continue to start to play. I mean, there's always going to be more players. This pipeline is always going to be full. And I say this a little bit with, you know, the big four. Oh, what are we going to do post-Roger and Rafa? Tennis will never be the same. Like, I think we'll be okay. It might not be quite what you're used to, but there's still going to be a lot of great tennis being played in the future. So, go tennis. Go tennis. So thank you guys for listening to this uh, rather different sort of show of ours. Hopefully you enjoyed it if not we'll try not to do it again thanks for listening and thanks for following along other ways if you want you can like us on facebook facebook.com slash ncr podcast you can also follow us on twitter at ncr underscore tennis you can subscribe to us on itunes or whatever your podcast app of choice is with our rss feed if you have questions for one of our shows you can email us no challenges remaining at gmail.com really quickly courtney there was a time driving um, from Cincinnati to Washington. Oh my God. Um, where we were in Pennsylvania. And I, my, even though I, you rarely trust my iPod on shuffle, which is smart, <laughs> a, uh, a song came on from uh, this band that I really liked when I was in high school called Euromotion. Way before I knew about Eurovision, I really liked Euromotion, which was this band of like a few people from Portland. Yeah. Who pretend that they are from the future and they've come back in time to teach the world how to dance. And that dances in in the future in the future, I think one of their lyrics is in the future the church will be a dance floor. And just sort of and they are fake <laughs> fake German <laughs> accents. They're ridiculous. And when this song came on, I got so excited that I immediately got a speeding ticket. I like accelerated for like twenty five miles per hour and just like Everything was out of control. So they had a song this week that I thought was sort of fit. <laughs> Randomly, it came on shuffle. And I was like, oh, wow, this actually kind of relates to things. Weirdly. So that's going to be our outro. Thanks for <laughs> listening, guys. Uh, enjoy the Euromotion and enjoy the tennis. And we will talk to you guys soon. Bye. And for the record, I really like Euromotion. Yeah, which is surprising, right? <laughs> <laughs> it shocked the shit out of me, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Later, guys. Bye.
Avec 